My name is Carol Ray, and it is my privilege always to read scripture. This morning, the passage is from Galatians chapter 5, verses 1 through 12. For freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Look, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. You are severed from Christ, you who would be justified by the law. You have fallen away from grace. For through the Spirit, by faith, we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything, but only faith working through love. You were running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? This persuasion is not from him who calls you. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. I have confidence in the Lord that you will take no other view than mine. And the one who is troubling you will bear the penalty, whoever he is. But if I, brothers, still preach circumcision, why am I still being persecuted? In that case, the offense of the cross has been removed. I wish those who unsettle you would emasculate themselves. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks, Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Well, good morning. All right. Good to see you, and welcome to Disciples Church. Uh, it is good to be with you today, and good to have you with us. Uh, I'm going to ask you this morning to turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 7. Romans chapter 7. It's a bit of a change up from the passage we just read, and we are going to look uh, at Galatians chapter 5, but we're going to spend a little bit of time in Romans 7 today. So if you can turn there, uh, that'll be where we spend at least the bulk of the sermon for, the, for at least the first portion of it. So turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 7. My name is Jonathan Mosier, by the way, and it is my privilege and honor to get to open up the Word of God with you today. Several years ago, uh, Jessica and I were sitting in our house, and we had had this noise that we could hear for a couple days, but for the life of us, we could not figure out where it was coming from. It was kind of a, a scratching sound. There was kind of a metallic sound, and we thought, well, maybe it was something with the HVAC in our house. We weren't entirely sure what it was, and one day, as I happened to be walking through the living room, I, I heard this sound coming from our fireplace, and so I walked over to it, and I listened closely, and there I could hear there was something moving in the fireplace above the damper. Something had managed to fall into the chimney. I could hear it scratching around, trying to find its way out, and at this point, there was a choice in front of me. I could call a professional pest management company, or I could handle it myself. Well, I'm not a chump, <laughs> so I figured I'm going to handle this thing myself. An hour later, I'd called somebody over to give me a hand with this. We'd, we'd donned some work gloves. We set up a plastic tote underneath the flue. We'd opened the, back, uh, the door to the backyard, and the off chance that if this animal somehow escaped our grasp in this plastic tote, we knew that it would dart for the nearest, uh, the nearest opening, and so we were... We were all set, so I began the countdown. Hey, after five seconds, we're going to open this thing up. We're going 
we're going to open the damper, whatever's in here is going to fall into the tote, we'll close it up, we'll release it outside, and we'll be done with this, having saved ourselves hundreds of dollars. So I counted down, and I, I, I leaned in, I reached, I grabbed to open the damper, and as soon as I opened it, some leaves and some soot fell down, but there was no rodent, no squirrel, whatever it was I was expecting to come out didn't come out, and so I remember kind of leaning in to see what was going to happen, and just at that moment, a bird shot by my head, and it startled me. I kind of fell back, and I was immediately a little bit freaked out, but remember, I had thought ahead, so I turned confidently to watch this magnificent avian fly to freedom through the open door, except that my compatriot had grown a little bit chilly and decided that it would be a good idea to close that door just before we had begun this project. And so as I turned and looked over, I saw this bird bouncing off of the glass, the inside glass of this door. So for the next five to ten minutes, at least in my memory, that's how long it was, it felt like it was hours, we were chasing this bird around our house, trying to get a crazed grackle over to the now open door. Now, what does that story illustrate? First, if you have an important job, you need to make sure you have good assistance. But second, much like that bird, if you escape one type of restraint, only to find that you are still restrained, you are not free. You didn't guess that's where we were going with the story, did you? But in the text that we look at this morning, Paul is writing to teach this very important lesson to people that are just like us. Paul had spent the entirety of his ministry traveling around the country preaching the gospel. Hundreds, perhaps thousands of people at this point had responded to the message of the gospel. And the message of the gospel that he presented is exactly what we talked about two weeks ago. This simple idea that there is nothing in and of yourself that is so worthy or deserving of God's love that he should save you based on your own merits, but in fact that you needed external salvation. You needed somebody else to come in and rescue you. And people were responding to this message in droves. But there were a group of people who called themselves the Judaizers. Their goal was to re-implement a form of Judaism into this newly found Christianity. And so they would follow behind Paul. They'd go into the towns into which he was preaching after he had left. And they'd say, hey, listen, we're, we're coming right behind Paul just to share a little bit more of the message with you. Because we believe in Jesus Christ. And we believe that salvation comes through him. And we believe that Jesus is absolutely necessary. But we also understand the importance of the Old Testament law of God. We understand the benefits that come from the old covenants. And so what we're going to encourage you to do is to follow that old covenant and to be faithful to the instruction of God in the Old Testament. And so men, you ought to be circumcised and everybody ought to follow these ceremonial laws just as a designation of your, sincer your sincerity and your pursuit of Jesus Christ. And in doing so, you will find yourself being made acceptable to God. And these Judaizers had now sneaked into the church in Galatia. They came in to a church, this fledgling group of believers, who understood the message we talked about last week, that Jesus had come to receive sinners. They'd heard and believed the gospel, that salvation is not through something they'd done, but freely given by grace. But now, these people, these young Christians, had found themselves in a moment of decision. Were they going to enjoy the freedom that they'd been granted by Christ, or were they going to head back to the constraints and enslavement 
from which they'd been saved. And here's Paul's instruction to this church. Verse 1, for freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Paul starts with this implicit truth, and it's easy to read past. The implicit truth he starts with is, you have been set free. If you know Jesus Christ, if you've experienced salvation, if you've if you've been washed by his blood, if you've experienced his grace, you've already been set free. You've been given the gift of a clean conscience. Your sin has been removed. The burden has been pulled off of your back and placed onto his. And what was Christ's purpose in setting you free? What did he intend for you to do with your freedom? What is the benefit to you of your salvation? You've been set free, according to Paul, for the purpose of freedom. And that sounds like he's trying to explain what freedom is by using freedom as its own definition. But what he's saying is this, the reason you've been set free is to be free. And so now whatever you do, brothers and sisters, don't go back to the yoke of slavery. Now in order to understand what that yoke of slavery is, we have to look at another passage, Romans chapter 7, which is astonishing in and of itself because it gives us such an insight into the struggle of Christianity. Paul in Romans chapter 7 is really in this mode of kind of confessing his own soul, and in confessing it, we see ourselves in the pages of Scripture. Paul says in this text, I don't understand my own actions. I wish I could explain to you, he's saying, why I struggle the way that I do in my Christian walk. I don't do the, the good things that I desire to do, but the evil things that I wish I could quit are the things that I keep on doing. In other words, I desire what is right, but I have no ability, seemingly, to carry it out. And he ties all of this explanation now to the law. Romans chapter 7, beginning in verse 5, here's what he writes. For while we were living in the flesh... Our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. So he's saying, before I knew Jesus Christ, when I knew the law, when the law of God had been given to me as a schoolmaster, as an instruction, what I realized about that law is that it was actually bringing out the worst parts of me. It was revealing my deepest intentions and desires. It was revealing the things with which I struggled, and it was working death into my life, spiritual death. Nothing was being renewed in me. Verse 6, but now in Christ we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code, the difference between life in the Spirit and the slavery of the law. What then shall we say? That the law is sin? By no means Yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. But sin, verse 8, seizing an opportunity through the commandment produced in me all kinds of covetousness. And Paul is, is giving us an explanation of the law of God in this text. And what he says is that the law is inherently valuable. Without the law... I wouldn't have known what sin was in my life. And he uses this example. He says, until the law told me not to covet, I didn't even realize that covetousness was something that I struggled with. 
And you can substitute whatever your own sin is into that blank. Whatever your struggle, your wrestle, your temptation is in life, until you were actually informed that that was something wrong, you didn't even realize it was wrong. It's the reason, for instance, that God gives, us, gives parents to children. Because left to their own devices, what we know about children is they are all about themselves. They are amazing at justifying their own behavior and rationalizing their own decisions. And until a parent comes along and says, what you are doing is wrong, the child has no understanding that what they're doing isn't appropriate. And if you watch kids for any length of time, you begin to see this play out in their life. Kids are natural lawmakers and lawbreakers. If you ever see a kid invent a game or a group of kids playing together, what you'll hear frequently is, you can't do that, it's against the rules, or that's not how we're playing, or I'm making a new rule. But yet, they're very willing to break that rule as soon as it serves their own purposes. See, we, all of us, needed a perfect, unchanging law. Because without it, we would never have known right from wrong. And the law is very effective for that purpose. It's great at revealing what's wrong, but it's completely impotent to affect change in our lives. So I recently had a check engine light come on in my car, and, and one of the first things that I did is I, I went online and I ordered this little gadget that I can plug into the carport uh, of my vehicle, and it communicates with my phone, and it'll actually read the code from the car, and it'll tell me on my phone exactly what's wrong. It's a great device because it kind of helps you know if you need to worry about it or if you don't, but here's the problem with that device. For as much information as it can give you, and for its unique ability to actually diagnose what's broken in your vehicle, it has no power in and of itself to fix what's broken. The law functions the exact same way. It can show you what's wrong, but it offers no hope for freedom or for victory in the struggles that you have in your life. So follow now the thinking of Paul as he gives this whole explanation. The Old Testament law could never even bring you to the point of moral neutrality before God much less make you whole and complete. In fact, Paul is going to continue by saying that the law actually, to some extent, makes things worse from a human perspective. Look what he says in the second half of verse 8. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me, for sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me, and through it, killed me. So if the law is holy, and the commandment is holy, and righteous, and good. So now the purpose of the law is to show us this perfect and holy standard, and in light of that standard, to cause us to realize that we could never live up to its expectations. And Paul says something interesting here. He says, the law is inherently good. It's a gift to us. It reveals what we need to know about ourselves. It reveals God's perfect and holy standard. He calls it good, but then he says that sin seized an opportunity through the law to bring about death in his own life. Now how can those two things be true? How could a good thing created by God, be used for evil. Well, in much the same way that a fire in a fireplace serves a very good purpose of warming your house and warming your body and, 
and providing the opportunity for food to be cooked. In the same way, fire outside of that fireplace creates all sorts of damage and harm. And there are two ways, at least, that Paul is going to lead us to, by extension, where he's saying the law used inappropriately leads you to death. And the first way is this. The first way is to say, here is the law of God. It's so perfect, and it's so holy, and it's so righteous, and it serves such a specific purpose, and there's no way that I could ever meet up to the standards. So I'm not even going to try. I'm going to dive headlong into life that is all about me. I'm going to indulge in whatever pleasures I see. I'm going to dive into whatever feels good. I'm going to use people for my own advantages. I'm going to, I'm going to make myself feel good at all costs because what is the point of even considering the instruction of God? And the second way that the law brings death is to make you think that if you try really hard, you can actually do it. So we stop some behaviors and we start other behaviors and, and when those things don't provide the wholeness and the meaning and the purpose and the intentionality that we are longing for, we double down and work harder until we're left in either pride at what we've been able to accomplish on our own or despair at our consistent failures. And either of those conclusions lead you away from God. Despair leads you to the realization that you're unable to accomplish these things, and it leads you back to step one, why even try? And pride is the first sin of mankind. It was the first sin of Lucifer in the presence of God. It's the most offensive sin in God's eyes. And so you've undone whatever good you think you've accomplished by virtue of the pride that now marks you. You're looking to the law to provide something that it was never intended to provide. And that's why we so desperately need a Savior. So this is what he says ultimately in, excuse me, uh, in, in Romans chapter 7, verse 24. Paul ends this section by saying this, Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself serve the law of God uh, with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. And here's what he's saying. When Jesus came and lived a perfect life on my behalf, he fulfilled the expectations of the law perfectly. He met the standard. He did everything that needed to be accomplished. And when he died, he took the punishment for my sin, the punishment that the law required, and he put that upon himself. And when he rose from the dead, he imputed his righteousness. His righteousness was applied to me personally, put into my account, as it were, and his perfect obedience on my behalf was now attributed to me. And he did this so that you are now free. Free from the condemnation of your own conscience, free from the guilt of sin, free from the burden of the law, from the penalty of disobedience, free from the fear of religion, free from the impotence of religion. Free because you knew, or rather know, that there is no point of the law by which Satan can now accuse you and say, you see God here is this one who is actually guilty, and in being guilty at one point, he's now guilty of the whole, free because the only one who could hold you responsible for your violation of the law has chosen of his own accord to bring forgiveness and perfect acceptance to you and now chooses not to remember the sins with which you struggle. So with all of that freedom, 
Why does the law remain such a temptation? Why does it remain such a temptation that Paul uses such incredibly harsh language in Galatians chapter 5? Do you understand what he says in the last verse that we read today? He's saying there are these people who are coming around and telling you that you ought to be circumcised if you're going to be right in the eyes of God. And remember, by the way, the context. Circumcision is this outward indication of devotion to and love for God that have existed for thousands of years in the Jewish tradition. And Paul says, if someone comes along and tells you that in order to demonstrate your sincerity, you ought to be circumcised, I wish they would go emasculate themselves. He's saying, I wish they'd go the whole way and finish the job. This is harsh language here. Now, why in the world is the law such a temptation for us if freedom in God is so good? And the reason we are tempted by the law, and for us, it's not the Old Testament right, Jewish rite of circumcision, but it's it's whatever standard of obedience we create for ourselves, the reason we're tempted by the law is because we like to think that we are contributing to our own position or because we fear that by our lack of contribution we will lose that position. But Paul is saying an incredible thing when he says in verse 1 of Galatians chapter 5, stand firm. What he's saying is don't give in. Don't grow afraid. So, I have a daughter who just turned two years old. And one of our favorite things to do together is dance. I don't dance in public. I try to avoid it at all costs. I only dance at weddings, and even then I try to be kind of shy about it. If there's a video camera rolling, I'm not going to dance. That's just the kind of guy that I am. But with my daughter in my house, I will dance. And so one of our favorite things to do is dance to the point where we're kind of spinning around and her legs are flying away from me. And she loves it and she giggles. But as soon as I do that, she clings on to me for dear life. Like she is holding on to me as if her life absolutely depends on it. Why? Because she's afraid of falling. Now there is nothing that she has in her ability to hold on. She doesn't have the strength, she doesn't have the dexterity, but her assurance is that she has a father who loves her and holds her. And what Paul is saying in this text is, brother and sister, understand that your ability to remain in the grasp of a loving father has nothing to do with your ability to hold on. You don't have the strength and you don't have the dexterity. You are completely at the Father's mercy, but the guarantee and the promise and the goodness that you're given in this text is that you have a Father who loves you so much and who is so strong and so encompassing that he will never let you go. And so Paul, therefore, says, stand firm and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Don't go back. Don't run from one cage to another. Well, what does that cage look like? Look what he says in verse 2. Look, I, Paul, and in saying that, he's trying to, trying to muster up all of the authority that he has within his position as an apostle. He says, I, Paul, the one who led you to know Jesus Christ, who proclaimed the gospel to you, I, Paul, say to you that if you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated then to keep the whole law. 
If you do that, you are severed from Christ. You who would be justified by the law, you have fallen away from grace. Now, what is he saying there? Because to our ears, it sounds like he's saying you can lose your salvation. That's not what he's saying. Notice the language he uses. He says, you who would try to be justified by the law, you've missed the whole point of what it is that grace does. Paul is saying to the Galatian church, understand, Christian, that if you believe that God has a higher opinion of you based on your obedience to the law, your ability to do those good things, then your, bel- then your belief in Jesus is for nothing. In other words, you cannot claim Jesus and in doing so admit that you're unable to save yourself only to turn around and claim your own good works by which you implicitly declare that you do not need help. So a couple years ago when our boys were a little bit younger than they are now and they were in the middle of taking swim lessons and so we had opportunity to be on vacation. We were in the hotel pool and so we were trying to get them to do what they'd been learning in their swim lessons, which was actually to push themselves away from the wall to have all the faith in the world that somebody out here was going to catch them and to come to us. And so I remember them kind of clinging to the wall and at first they, would, they were clinging so tight that their, their hands were just white and they would slowly let go with one hand and kind of reach out, hands shaking, trying to do both at the same time. But here's the problem. In order to come to us, it required that they let go and turn. And vice versa, if they wanted to go back to the wall, it meant that they would have to turn their backs on us to go back to what felt safe to them. You can't hold on to the edge and cling to your parents at the same time that you're clinging to the edge of the pool. Clinging to one requires that you let go of the other. And I wonder how often we do the very same thing in our own way today. So if God were to ask you, by what means should I accept you? By what means are you acceptable in my holy and perfect sight? What would be the first answer that pops to your mind? Because it reveals a lot about what we believe. And certainly there are some who would say, well, I've been baptized and I'm a good person and I vote for the right candidates and I pay my taxes. And there might be others who would say, well, I I believe in Jesus and I try my hardest and I'm a family man and I work hard and I try to raise my kids right. And others might say, well, just take a look at my theology. I mean, there's no point of doctrine at which I don't hold an orthodox position. But what provides your acceptance is only the perfect work of Jesus on your behalf. And what Paul is saying is, if you try to add anything to Jesus, you lose Jesus. Jesus refuses to be a spoke in the wheel of your life. If he is not the hub, the very center, he is not anything to you. So if we think that it's Jesus plus anything, in the process we lose Jesus. It's not Jesus plus my baptism, or Jesus plus my church attendance, or Jesus plus my obedience, or Jesus 
plus my service or Jesus plus my giving or Jesus plus my community outreach. And my point, by the way, is not to diminish the importance or the value of any of those things. In fact, we're going to talk about several of them in the weeks to come. But my point is to say, in quoting William Hendrickson on this exact topic, a Christ supplemented is a Christ supplanted. When you try to add something to Jesus, you've just replaced him. Paul continues in verse 11, but if I, brothers, still preach circumcision, if I still preach that law, if I still preach what would make these Judaizers comfortable, then why am I still being persecuted? In that case, the offense of the cross has been removed. In other words, if at any point we believe that we improve our spiritual lot by virtue of our right behavior or our right belief, we have removed the offense of the cross. The offense of the cross is that sin had left you in such a helpless estate. It had left you as such a spiritual beggar and so spiritually dead that you needed someone else to do for you what you could not do on your own. And when we do that, when we try to imagine that we can add to our own spiritual position, what we are communicating is that Jesus came for no reason. And here, Paul says, is the irony. Because when we remove the offense of the cross, we offend the Savior who gave himself on it. In other words... To paraphrase one theologian, the only way Jesus can be an advantage to you is for you, to, is for you to realize that only Jesus can be an advantage for you. So we're at the end of three weeks where we have talked in depth each week on what the gospel is and what it's not. And the question that might be going through your mind is this, why do we spend so much time talking about this topic? And the reason we spend so much time on it is because the Bible spends an inordinate amount of time on this topic. We spend so much time talking about it because the drift of the church at large is to communicate something other than this message. The natural inclination of our hearts is to move on from this so quickly. And the other reason that we focus on this so much is because this is the only message that brings freedom. And finally, notice what Paul says in verse 6. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision, obedience to the law, nor uncircumcision, disobedience to the law, counts for anything but only faith working through love. Paul says, do you want to understand what actually matters to God, what he's actually looking for in your life as a believer and as a follower of him? He's looking for faith working through love. not out of obligation, not out of duty, not trying to earn something from him, but faith working through love. And that idea that we find in verse 6 is going to be the springboard for the next six weeks of what we're going to discuss at Disciples Church. That in Jesus Christ, our works, our performance, our adherence to the law is worthless. But there is something that has value. 
faith working through love, the implicit question that Paul is posing is what are you going to do now that you don't have to do anything? So beginning next week, we're going to start moving through some of the practical conversations of how these truths, and specifically how faith works itself out in our life. How does faith work through love? What does that look like for us? How has Jesus specifically equipped us for that calling? What obligations and opportunities has he given to us to minister? And what does that look like in our lives? Namely, what does this gospel enable within us and how how does it work itself out in our lives both personally and collectively? And the reason that we're talking about this today is that there is a temptation in that. The temptation is to begin to see the gifts, the invitations, and the callings that God puts in our life as duty and obligation that earns or maintains our good standing in his sight. And our hope as a church together is that as we discuss these good and right things, the battle cry that will ring in your hearts and minds, the idea that will motivate and animate you in this next season of your life is that it is for freedom that Christ has set us free. That the love of Christ both enables and drives our obedience, not the other way around. There's a classic old hymn that has a line that speaks to this idea so beautifully, and it goes like this. To see the law by Christ fulfilled, to hear his pardoning voice, changes a slave into a child, and duty into choice. When we realize that Christ has accomplished everything, our motivation is no longer duty or obligation. It's love, sonship, and daughterhood. And to anyone here who might be saying, all of this is lost on me, because I've never experienced the kind of freedom you're talking about. I feel heavy and burdened despite my experience in the church, or perhaps even because of it. I feel nothing but guilt and shame for my inability to do right and my constant failure. The invitation of Christ for you this morning is come unto me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. So go to the rest giver. Go to the lover of your soul. Go to the friend of sinners and find freedom in his finished work and acceptance. Let's pray. God, thank you for the time we've been able to take together to look into ideas that are weighty and big and at the same time so simple. God, so simple that a child can believe and understand these things so simple that when we use the language that salvation is a free gift given by you, that you love and pursue those whom you care about, and that there's nothing good in us by which we're accepted, but that you've done everything necessary on our behalf, would we find in those words freedom? 
would we find in that experience of freedom? And so, God, I pray for the brother and sister in this room who's experienced the freedom of salvation and lost it over time, who slipped back into that Judaizing mindset, believing that there's something they can do, something they must do, in fact, to earn or maintain their place. God, would you rip the weight from their back and your gentleness and your goodness would you pry their fingers from the edge of the pool and draw them out into the deep waters, trusting that in the arms of their father they have safety? And God, to the one who may be here who's never experienced this, despite what might be, despite what in their minds might be filled with good doctrine and right teaching and right belief, but never having actually understood or embraced the reality of what it is that you've done on their behalf, would today be the day, the day of repentance, where they'd find that acceptance that only you can offer. And so God, would all of these things drive us and motivate us as we move into this, into these coming weeks of discussing what the, what the life of the believer looks like. God, remind us that we can't do these things of our own power but that since you've made us sons and daughters, you've turned duty and obligation into choice and love. And God, we pray all these things in your most beautiful name.